to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Hello, I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Today I'm talking on The Commercial Disco to the Human Rights Commissioner, Edward Santow. Edward, how are you? Really well. This is a perfect moment in time to be talking to you because you're leading the Human Rights Commission's work on technology and human rights. And I think you've got a very specific project, Human Rights and Technology, ongoing right now. I wonder if you can just start by giving us a little snapshot on what you're trying to capture in that project. So this project on human rights and technology will be the biggest project that I do in my term as commissioner. It's starting from a position that is kind of not ideological. We see the benefits that new technologies like artificial intelligence bring to, you know, for our economy, to make services more efficient, uh, but, but also to advance human rights and make our communities more inclusive. But for every one of those examples, there's usually a kind of a dark side as well. And it's probably my melancholy duty as Human Rights Commissioner to focus a bit more on the risks and threats of because they're real. We've understood fairly well that a right to privacy is something that is engaged by artificial intelligence in particular. But what we've really sought to explore in the project to date is how other rights like equality, non-discrimination, the right to a fair trial even, can be threatened if we don't make really mindful decisions now. So there's a lot to get through just in that little snapshot that you've given there. So I wonder, for the the work you've done so far, human rights and technology, um, you've been looking around the world at how different laws and different cultures. So what's the conversation like in this country? I know you have an expert panel that has some world-leading authorities and in this area, Genevieve Bell, Toby Walsh, among others. Broadly, what's the level of conversation like in this country? I think we understand in Australia that we have to be innovative. Uh, we're, we're a country, 24 million people. We can't compete on scale with countries like the United States or China. And so we have to be smart. And we've actually got a fantastic track record for millennia, so well before white people came to Australia in being really innovative. And, and certainly in the last 100 and 200 years, we've also been quite an early adopter of new technologies. So, so I think that that's actually built into our DNA. We may not kind of espouse it with enormous confidence, but we should. I think that there's, there's a really positive story to tell there. But I also think that sometimes we can be not as focused as we need to be in making sure that the innovations that we are embracing to kind of deal with the tyranny of distance and, and all of the particular challenges that come with living in Australia, that our human rights are properly protected, that, um, that the innovation doesn't lead to some terrible unintended consequence. Because take us out of the AI field, you know, we are the country that embraced cane toads. And um, the analogy I'm trying to draw here is that cane toads were a very smart innovation sort of, in that they dealt very effectively with the problem that they were brought in to deal with, which was essentially a blight on our sugar cane. Uh, the problem is we've been left with tens of billions of cane toads, which, you know, it was not a properly thought through, I guess, solution. And so really what we w- want to make sure is that we 
are able to innovate to solve the sorts of problems, to take the sorts of opportunities that we can see around us. But we do so really smartly. And I think that's the piece to the puzzle that I think we can do better in, that we can say, well, we can innovate in a way that is consistent with our values and that will be better. It'll be smarter. It'll give our citizens what we want. But when it comes to competing on the international plane, I also think it will be to our competitive advantage if we can show to consumers overseas that if you have a piece of AI or new technology that's developed here, that it's going to have human rights protections baked in. And I guess if you've got cultural values of Australia baked in, as you say, that is potentially, I suppose, a competitive advantage depending on where you're uh, exporting that particular piece of software to. Regulation invariably follows innovation as opposed to leads it. Australia is not a massive producer of the tech it uses. We import, you know, the vast majority of, of what we use. You know, it, it's a difficult area to get in front of, isn't it? Because we don't necessarily see what's coming down the pipe in the same granularity as other markets. Yeah, it depends a bit about how you regulate though. Because if what you're trying to do, and I think you're absolutely right, if, if what you're trying to do is regulate post a big development, um, then you're constantly playing catch up or whack-a-mole, whatever your kind of favoured image is. But there's another approach, right? The other approach, and some I think countries are doing this really well, and I think we're at a crossroads here in Australia where we can really embrace this approach, is to articulate very clearly what our overarching values are, what are the kind of red lines that we take as inviolable, and to make sure that anyone who is seeking to engage in innovation, including the government for that matter, is respectful of those markers or those boundaries. And, and essentially what that does is that can fuel, I think, a very positive form of creativity because some boundaries, some clear legal boundaries around what you can and can't do, I think can be, and we've seen this, you know, over again, over many, many years, that can actually spurn really effective innovation. I guess it's difficult to have these conversations without culture wars stepping into them. Like these are very highly contested areas. People have very different views and different industry sectors and different parts of different industry sectors have different views on the use of data and how liberal that should be. How do we tie all those strands together? How do we get the innovators in, in the tech sector who want to drag as much data together as they can, you know, to satisfy real-world problems, how do we get them talking the same language as people who are a little more reticent about that? I think the starting point is not to try and invent a new language. I think we need to hearken back to the things that are tried and true foundational principles in our political, social, legal system. We would say that that includes human rights law. I mean, we've had this international human rights system now for well over 70 years. It's proven incredibly enduring, but also very adaptable to a range of different problems. By contrast, what we've seen, especially recently, is the growth in some kind of untethered thinking about, you know, quote-unquote AI ethics. Now, sometimes that's entirely appropriate. That That's a very legitimate, like it can be a very legitimate field of endeavour in terms of identifying how AI can cause harm, but it can equally be a bit of a kind of a veneer if a company says, oh, don't worry, we've got an AI ethics framework, we're going to 
be nice. And if you look at their AI ethics framework, that's basically what it says. We'll, we'll be nice. We're not going to cause harm. We'll, you know, make sure that we have a do no harm approach, that those sorts of things. Like those things are unobjectionable, but they're so vague and so impossible to hold people to account to it that they're not actually going to achieve much practical kind of effect. By contrast, if we if we simply start from the position that we've got a whole bunch of laws that are really central to our system where we're going to enforce those laws. So if you're using AI to you know decide whether to give someone a home loan, then it should be just as unlawful to discriminate against that person on the basis of their sex or their race as it would be if you're using an abacus or some very conventional way of making that decision. The key is the decision that you're making. It's not about how you make the decision that doesn't somehow give you a free pass to do something that would be completely unthinkable otherwise. And and I think that's something that we need to be kind of confident about in, in terms of articulating the kind of country that we are. What about the issue of, I mean, the very basic issue of privacy? Do we need to redefine the word? You just said we, we shouldn't be redefining language, but privacy privacy in 2020 and, and beyond seems very, very difficult to achieve. Yeah. I mean, some human rights, and privacy is definitely one of them, are difficult to define. You know, that's something that you go back over a century and the famous American jurist and judge, Brandis, Brandeis, I should say, he, he made the observation that it's very difficult to define privacy but gave some indicia of, of what, it, what it is. And, and sometimes I feel like a breach of someone's privacy, it's a bit like trying to describe an elephant. It's very, very difficult to describe an elephant to someone who's never seen one before, but you kind of know it when you see it. And similarly with privacy, you know, it's, it's an assault on your dignity. It stops you from living a more secluded life. It kind of intrudes on your autonomy to to decide how much you'll be in the public eye and how much you won't. Um, but those things are pretty abstract concepts. And so what we need to do as much as possible is to make them concrete. So when, when we talk about a violation of, of someone's privacy, I think we need to make sure that our law and um, our regulatory authorities be very clear in giving practical examples so that if you're a company kind of operating in this space, you have clear boundary markers about what you can and can't do. I'll just take a take a very specific example. What about a, a large retail chain that uses facial recognition and AI software to cross-match against police records and that kind of database to identify you know, thieves or potential thieves and to have them intercepted or watched? Now, I don't know how many thieves walk into these big stores, but it would be a, a minute percentage. So, But everyone else's privacy in some way. Uh, I don't know. Do you consider that a breach? I mean, how do you view something like that? I mean, I, I guess we've got two main concerns about that sort of scenario. The first is that essentially it's a kind of traditional privacy concern. It, it's, I guess, a new form of surveillance that has, that sort of scoops up pretty much everyone's personal information, whether or not you've done the wrong thing. And you all kind of get churned up in this new system and it reveals stuff about you that you've got no control over. And that is a worrying thing. I genuinely find that worrying and concerning and there, and there needs to be some very careful limits placed on that. But there's another concern, which in some ways is more fundamental, and that is that the technology itself is very much, I mean, to put it as 
kind of positively as possible. It's very much in beta, right? So we know that particularly that the sort of facial recognition that you're describing, which is one-to-many facial recognition. So it's not just saying, is this person who they claim to be? It's who is this person or, you know, on the basis of a huge database? That's a very difficult thing to achieve even now in 2020. And the error rates are exceptionally high. Um, when you've seen this be used in high-stakes areas like in policing, perhaps most enthusiastically in the United Kingdom, you've had error rates. I mean, the London Metropolitan Police's um, trial of facial recognition a couple of years ago, it had a false positive rate of 98%. Just think about that. And then and then when you think about what the consequences are of making that error, maybe you'll realise you've made the error, but in the period of time when you make the error, when you realise you made an error, in a high stakes situation like that, the consequences can be catastrophic, right? Like you can, the police, or in this case, the security guard can detain the person, can search them, can can do potentially quite a... Um, an invasive search of the individual. And that's a real assault on your dignity. And so I guess we need to confront the fact that, yes, the technology is improving, but at, at this stage, the technology still throws up a lot of errors and the errors are not evenly distributed. We know that those facial leading facial recognition applications are much more likely to be in error when they're trying to identify someone with dark skin as opposed to someone with light skin. They're also more likely to cause an error if it's a woman than a man, someone with a physical disability than someone without a physical disability. And so that should also cause us concern. I guess that algorithmic bias gets, you know, there's there's layers of additional complexity once you add privately held companies, data pools or data lakes, no kind of public visibility of algorithms, that kind of thing. Are there developing, you know, accepted norms of behaviour in relation to the way that regulators can address, you know, those imponderables, I suppose you'd call them. Yeah. I mean, I actually think the starting point might be to turn that on its head. So we know, even if you haven't been following technology development closely, we know that something that is so central to the current wave of technological development is the idea that rules are there to be broken. <laughs> you know, the, the kind of move fast, break things attitude is, is one that is incredibly pervasive. And if I can be blunt about it, it's almost been fetishized as something that is an inherently good thing. And what I would say is if you're doing something that is very, very low risk, if you're developing a new computer game and the rule that you're talking about is, is not really a legal rule, it's just kind of, you know, a rule of practice or something like that and you're kind of, you know, breaking that sort of rule, I've got a lot less concern about that. But if you're breaking a fundamental law, something that is as basic as not discriminating against someone or not breaching their privacy in an area that is of real importance to people, that is not something that we should just take a blase, oh, well, you know, rules are there to be broken attitude. I think the starting point then is to say, Let's make sure we are better at explaining how the, these existing rules apply to this new context and then making sure that those rules are enforced. And that's actually been central to previous waves of innovation. <laughs> the kind of developers of you know, the automobile, of um, aeroplanes, of, of, of other things that at one point were exciting new technologies, never for a moment thought, oh, well, 
we can just kind of pretend that there are no rules here about you know not harming people, not being negligent, those sorts of things. That was never even part of the debate. And I think what we need to do is be a bit more discerning in the new tech area as well and say, look, if you're going to be very good at your job, if you're going to be a true innovator, then you're going to do so in a way that is respectful of those basic rules that are designed to keep the community safe. So I guess at the end of this project, there'll be a report, there'll be recommendations, there'll be a a public discussion on the back of a bunch of submissions that you've had from uh, civil society. So where to from there, I suppose? I mean, building the kind of regulatory infrastructure beyond what's in place now, I guess that's part of of what you're doing. Yeah, I'm going to make a confession here. When we started the project, I started with one of the hypotheses that we would need a huge amount of new regulation. And when you talk about building a new regulatory infrastructure, I think what I've realised is that that's not actually what we need. We've got a regulatory infrastructure that, that is there, but all too often is being ignored. And so it's not about building a new one. It's about making sure that that existing one that has served us so well over literally generations is properly applied and enforced. And I think we all have a role to play. So we, uh, as a regulator, can do, I think, a really useful piece of work here in helping to explain how, for example, anti-discrimination law works to people who are engaged in developing new technology or purchasing new technology like AI. I think if you're a company that is in this space, either purchasing, um, you know, new AI decision-making tools or developing them, then I think it's very important to start to engage with what it means to protect people's basic human rights. And so I think there can be more of a conversation at play there. And certainly, I think, you know, we put out a discussion paper at the end of last year with our kind of draft thinking, and we've done a final round of consultation on the back of that. And I think that came through very, very strongly in this consultation process, that there are some gaps in the law and they need to be filled, no question. But the bigger task is better applying those existing laws and and doing so in a way that essentially takes not just the community with us, but but also the kind of companies and academics and others who are involved in this kind of cutting edge of innovation. I'm going to say, given the global nature of many of the companies that are involved in this space, multilateralism will be key. But it comes at a moment in time when multilateralism probably isn't as strong or the institutions of multilateralism aren't necessarily as strong as they have been. What does that mean to what you've just outlined? Look, that is a bigger challenge, no question. I think we would be in a worse position if we kind of came to the conclusion that we need a new international treaty on artificial intelligence. I'm I'm not convinced that that should be the top priority. As I say, I think it's more about applying the the treaties we already have, like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Now, that's hard, but dreaming up a new treaty when countries find it difficult to agree with each other, that would be, you know, kind of climbing Mount Everest. And so I guess I'm, I'm conscious that it's a big challenge. I think the big thing that's been changing over the last couple of years, and I think this, this is significant and positive, is that populations right around the world are waking up to what's at stake. So if we were having this conversation a few years ago and you said to people, you know, what, what's the human rights implications of artificial intelligence? They'd probably give an example like this. They'd say, oh, well, you know, I was searching for a new dining room table on Google 
And then when that unhappy task was over, I then had dining room tables marketed at me nonstop for the next three weeks. And they say, that's a privacy issue. And it, and it is. And it's uncomfortable and no one really likes it. But is that the biggest concern? No, it's not even in the top 20. Um, and I think what people understand now, I mean, you used the term algorithmic bias before. What they understand now is that what really is at stake, what the biggest concerns are, that you could have your personal information used against you. And that could lead to you being discriminated against on the basis of something that you can't control, like your race or your age or your sexual orientation or your sex or your gender, whatever. But it can also kind of engage a range of other rights as well. As I mentioned before, you know, in a policing context, it can engage the right to a fair trial, not to be arbitrarily detained and so on. So I think with the populations around the world really starting to understand that that's what's at stake, I think there is a growing pressure from communities to make sure that these things are properly addressed. And I think that's positive. All right, Edward Santel, Human Rights Commissioner, conscious of time. So it's impossible to have a discussion about anything these days without spending a little bit of time talking about COVID-19, talking about the pandemic. Obviously, work from home, there's been massive change in the way people work, all of those things, the deployment of uh, business to business and technology has been extraordinary in 2020. So in terms of your own work, your own thinking, has this accelerated either the need for what you're doing or has it accelerated the rate of thinking around what the primary issues are going to be? I think it certainly heightened the importance of this work. We've seen all kinds of analyses that seem absolutely spot on. We've kind of made some technological leaps in terms of the pervasiveness of new tech that, you know, in the last few months that otherwise may have taken five, ten or more years and so I think we're all becoming much more reliant on technology, basically, as we have to engage in more social or physical distancing. We find that tech is much more a medium that connects us, and we want it to connect us in a way that it is going to be respectful of our basic rights. And so I think, if anything, COVID-19 has shown that we need to engage in this sort of debate more urgently. Look, I have another area I wanted to ask you about. I want you to have a look at it um, in the brief time we've got left. The issue of consent, particularly I wanted to ask you, I mean, consent has lots of different forms, but I wanted to ask you in relation to the delivery of government services in particular and the way that governments share data either between their own departments or with external partners in the formation and delivery of services to citizens. How do we define consent now? Does it have to be informed? Can it be implied? What's the thinking from your side of the fence? Yeah, it's a very difficult issue. And consent means different things to different people. But certainly, consent has appeared to be quite an elastic term. And elastic has stretched a lot. And sometimes it feels like it's breaking. <laughs> so I think everyone has experienced that phenomenon where you're trying to access something, either a private company's website or government website, and it gives you this big screen of text. And then at the bottom, it says, you know, I consent, I've read all of this. Who among us reads all of that? Well, according to the Privacy Commissioner's longstanding research, it's common sense, very few. Um, probably fewer even than claimed to, to read it. And so if consent is to mean something, it can't just be that I've clicked a button because I, because I want something. <laughs> I think what we need to be able to do is have a more sophisticated kind of delineation of when consent is truly required and then it should be something that, that is really a meeting of the minds or where the 
where consent is is just if it's just an illusory protection, then it shouldn't be there at all. We should be relying on some other protection. Can I can I maybe give this quick example from history, John? So we were having this same kind of debate about half a century ago in Australia and a whole bunch of other countries as well, before the the kind of modern wave of consumer protection laws came in. And what it meant effectively was that if you were a manufacturer, say, of a car, a customer could come into your showroom and they'd sign a contract to buy the car. Contract would be, you know, 100 pages long. And somewhere in it, it would say, look, you know, if the car explodes on the way out of the showroom and you're badly injured and all of your family are badly injured, we bear no responsibility. No one will actually read that contract, right? And ultimately, what countries like Australia and pretty much every country we would compare ourselves to um, said was consent is illusory here. It's not providing any real protection here. What we actually want to do is be clear about what companies can and can't do. And so now if you have a contract like that, it doesn't matter whether someone has signed it or not. The, the simple fact is you can't contract out of some basic obligations. And so I think what we need to rearticulate now, particularly as more government services move online and as companies use the same sort of technology to, to deliver their own products and services, then I think what we need to be more kind of mindful of is what are the things that we don't want people to try and contract out of because they're so fundamental. So to give you an example, in our space, you, it's irrelevant whether someone says, well, I, I consent to you being racist towards me. You can't consent to that, right? And so I think we need to kind of have that conversation more clearly as well. Yeah, I guess that's uh, it's definitely an ongoing discussion and an ongoing international discussion about how we define that and then how we uh, wrap some regulation around it. Edward Santel, Human Rights Commissioner, I really appreciate you coming on Commercial Disco and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again over these issues as they, uh, as they continue. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is The Commercial Disco... Wishing you a great week ahead.